Good morning. My name is Pastor John. I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore. Thank you for joining us in worship this morning. Now, a, a word that people who are in church or Christian people like to throw around a lot is the word blessed. The word blessed. And I'm just as guilty as anyone. If I'm grateful for something in my life, I'll say that I'm blessed. If I want to wish someone well, I'll say to them, have a blessed day. But what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean when we use that word? Well, I decided to check the place where I could find truth in the world, so I went to Twitter. And when I was on Twitter, <laughs> I, I typed in hashtag blessed, and just to see what people think blessed means. And when I did that, the first couple entries I saw from people, I have no idea who they are, but someone said that they got a raise at their job, hashtag blessed. The next person had pictures of a new car they bought, hashtag blessed. Someone after that was so thankful for everyone who wished them happy birthday, and they said hashtag blessed. Another person after that was spending time with their family, hashtag blessed. But in God's eyes, who really is blessed? Well, today we're going to look at Jesus' answer to that question. If anyone knows what it means to be blessed, it would be God's Son. And according to Jesus, those who are blessed have certain character traits. They live a particular lifestyle. To his followers, Jesus is saying, this is the way. This is the way to true blessing and true happiness. So if we're going to be hashtag blessed, we should learn what those character traits are. If you're not there already, please turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at verses 3 through 12 today. If you want to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you should find it on page 510. So Matthew 5. And once you are there, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. Matthew 5, I'm going to be reading verse 3 through verse 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Jesus is speaking, and this was what he says, starting in verse 3. Blessed are those who mourn. Sorry, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we have in your word today. God, if we're going to understand what it means to be blessed, then we need you with us. We are dependent upon you. I pray in this time that you would increase, that I would decrease, and that we could see you clearly in your word. 
May what we say here today lead us to understand the character of a Christian. Build in us, Lord, a character that honors you. Lead us in the way that is only possible through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's take a moment to remind ourselves where we are in Scripture. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a passage located in the Gospel according to Matthew. It's one of four Gospels, accounts, stories of Jesus that we have in the Bible. This passage, the Sermon on the Mount, it's the longest uninterrupted sermon or speech from Jesus, the longest one that we have in the Gospels. It's a model of what Jesus preached about. Last week, we talked about the sermon as a whole, and we talked about how it's a call for exceeding righteousness. Followers of Jesus should have a righteousness, a goodness that exceeds that of all others. Their lives should be defined by righteous living. This week, we're going to look at the first few verses of the sermon, and this is a passage that is known as the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And that that word beatitude, it comes from the Latin word for happy or blessed, which I'm sure as you notice, looking at this passage, almost every single verse began with the word blessed. There's also a shorter version of this list over in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6. But what are these beatitudes about? Well, the only people who can live a life of exceeding righteousness, the only people who can live like Jesus is calling them to live, are those of a particular character. And the Beatitudes tell us what that character is, what it looks like. Now, many preachers, if they're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, they'll take a week to talk about each of these Beatitudes, and they'll go through this verse by verse, one per week. However, I've decided to look at them all together. These are powerful verses. They deserve close attention, but I wanted to look at them all together for two reasons. First, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, that's going to be a lengthy series, and I didn't want to extend it too much. But the more important reason is I want to maintain the unity of this passage. The Beatitudes are one complete picture. They're one picture of how Jesus lived and how his followers, those who go after him, are to live as well. This is the way for the Christian. This is the way to life for all of God's followers. It's the way of life that all of them are to pursue. In the words of the Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, all Christians are to be like this. Read the Beatitudes, and there you have a description of what every Christian is meant to be. True Christians will demonstrate these character traits in their lives. They will be blessed. They will experience God's special favor. Now, Christians will never be perfect on this side of eternity, And one Christian may do one of these things better than another, but still, all Christians will live out all of these character traits because they do not come from our human nature. They can only be truly produced through the operation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christ's people. These traits impact how Christians live before God, how they live within themselves, and how they live before others. So Jesus begins by talking about the true Christian's character before God, before God. As you see in verse 3, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, he's not really talking here about how much money is in your bank account. It's poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who realize their need for God. 
Isaiah 57 and verse 15, it reflects a very similar truth. It says, thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, for name is, whose name is holy, God says, I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite, the lowly of spirit, the poor in spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So instead of associating with those who are full of self-confidence, those who are self-reliant, God chooses to be with those who are poor in spirit. He revives their hearts. He builds them up. Or in Jesus' words in verse 3, they receive the kingdom of heaven. God doesn't want you to pretend like you have it all together. He wants his people to honestly express their need for him, to honestly express their dependence upon him. That means that true Christians are aware of their limitations. They know they need God. They know that they are hopeless without him. One Bible scholar, Charles Quarles, he writes that the poor in spirit cry out to God for help. They depend entirely on God's grace to meet their needs. They have a humble and contrite spirit. They experience God's deliverance and they enjoy his undeserved favor. The poor in spirit cry out to God. They need him. And this is the opposite of pride because someone who is proud relies on themselves and on their own abilities. But the poor in spirit know that they are nothing compared to God and that they are completely reliant upon him. And you know, at the end of the day, the truth is that every person is dependent on God for their life and existence. Both the proud and the poor in spirit owe everything to the Lord. If God so chose, he could end your life, he could end all existence in the blink of an eye. But it's only those who recognize that God has that control, that he is in control. It is only them who shall receive entry to the kingdom of heaven, because blessed are the poor in spirit. In verse 4, Jesus then extends this blessing to those who mourn. And while God certainly provides comfort for those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, the emphasis here seems to be on a sorrowful repentance, a broken-hearted turning away from sin. Because every person has sinned and every person has rebelled against the holy and perfect God. Jesus is here saying that God's comfort comes to those who have mourned the deep darkness of their sin. When his people mourn, when they turn away from their sin, then they experience God's amazing, comforting grace. Jesus' words here echo a passage from Isaiah 61, both his words in verse 3 and verse 4. In that passage, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, on this servant, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There's that poor in spirit. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, those who are mourning, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. Here from verse 4, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of that mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint, a poor spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 
Now, I know that that's a longer passage, but it reveals much of what God does for His people. His good news gives comfort to the poor and to the mourning. It brings joy to their lives to be restored to a right relationship with God. Now, as this passage said, they can be an oak of righteousness. They can grow in right living and bring God glory. Understanding that we are sinners is devastating, but this knowledge leads to a greater comfort than we have ever known before. So these first two Beatitudes in verse 3 and 4, they're arguably the most important because our relationship with God comes first. It's essential that we understand our sin and our position before God. I say this because there's some people who they think the good news of Jesus is about you can go to heaven when you die, and that's all it's about. But the truth is our sin has separated us from God. Our rebellion has broken our relationship with Him. And until we recognize that we are hopeless without God, until we are broken by our sin, then we will not understand true repentance, true grace, and true saving faith. In other words, the Christian faith is not something that you can try for a season. You can't try it out and then return it to the store or cancel your subscription. Faith in Jesus is the last chance, the desperate response of a hopeless sinner. True Christians' hearts and souls must be crushed by their rebellion against the one true God. We must turn from that sin. We must call out to God for salvation. In James 4, we read about this. It reflects the same attitude. James writes, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? What are we doing? We are humbling yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We sang a song about that just a few minutes ago. When we understand our position before God, when we lower ourselves in his sight, that is when we experience his comfort, when we receive his kingdom, and when we become right with him. And it's only when we're right with God on the inside that we begin to live for God on the outside in our daily thoughts, our actions, and our words. And that's why Jesus then turns to talking about the true Christian's character within. The true Christian's character within. Who we are before God is most important. That's why he started with that. But once we know God, he begins to change us from the inside out. So what kind of character will a true Christian have? Well, Jesus starts in verse 5 with someone who is meek or humble. While the rest of the world values those who are strong and powerful, Jesus says it is the meek who will inherit the earth. He may be referencing Psalm 37. In verses 10 and 11, we read, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. It's often a cliche in the church, but it's true. Meekness does not equal weakness. What Jesus is talking about is a proper view of ourselves. Meekness is knowing that we are not the most important person in the world. It is taking comfort from that knowledge. It is treating others better than ourselves. One pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, he describes it this way, meekness is the humble strength 
that belongs to the man or the woman who has learned to submit to difficulties, knowing that in everything God is working for his good. He has learned in gratitude for God's grace to submit himself to the Lord and to be gentle with sinners. So a meek person does not defend his own interest. A meek person encourages the interest of others. The trials and the inconveniences of life do not break a meek believer because they depend on God. Next, in verse 6, Jesus says that the one who hungers, the one who thirsts for righteousness or God's justice will be satisfied. He or she will be filled with, they will be made content by the righteousness of their Lord. True Christians will want more of God's goodness because they know that he is all they need. Just a few hundred years after Jesus, the early church father Augustine describes every human's position before God this way. Talking to God, he says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. True Christians are consumed, they're overwhelmed by a desire for righteousness, a desire to know God. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, it pictures this desire. It says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? True Christians want God, first and foremost. Not ease, not comfort, not pleasure. They want God himself. They want to know him. They hunger to live like him. Now, this is not to say that a Christian will never struggle with temptation to sin, but it does mean that God's people will have a burning desire, a hunger to be like their Lord. They will want to do good. They will want to honor God. So what that means is if you find yourself not wanting to do what God desires, if you constantly find yourself saying, I know God says this, but I want to do that, that says a lot about the condition of your heart. Because true Christians hunger, they thirst for righteousness. It's what they seek after. Now later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will tell his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things shall be added to you. Friends, there's many things that we can desire in life. We may desire food, drink, clothes. We desire friends, financial stability. We want meaningful relationships. We want new experiences or fun adventures. And there's nothing wrong with desiring any of that. But true Christians know that they are to seek after God They are to hunger and thirst for his righteousness first and foremost. Because as as amazing as all those other desires are, they can never ultimately satisfy. In verse 7, Jesus tells his disciples then, it is the merciful who will receive or obtain mercy. The merciful will be shown the mercy that they show to others. Much later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks about what will happen when he returns. In Matthew 25, he says this, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom 
prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then just a little bit later, he explains what he means. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. By showing mercy, by showing kindness, by showing grace to others, true Christians reveal that they have the character that will receive God's mercy. Now, they're not doing this to earn God's mercy and grace, but by being merciful, they are treating others the same way that God treated them. In Luke 6, Jesus simply says, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So if we truly understand what God has done for us, then we will be compelled to extend mercy and grace to others whenever possible. When we see someone who's in poverty or who's stuck in sin, it will remind us how we were poor before God and we were separated from His grace. And so instead of condemning them, we will seek to show God's love to them. I know I've mentioned this before, but I don't get worked up when I see non-Christians sinning because it's what they do. Instead, I mourn their sin. And I seek to show them the forgiveness and mercy that God was so gracious to show me. Because that kind of merciful response can only come from a pure heart, like Jesus describes in verse 8. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, because it is only the pure in heart who shall see God. And once again, Jesus seems to be referring to the Psalms. In Psalm 24, it says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. In other words, the state of our hearts is much more important than our behavior on the outside. Now, that doesn't mean that our actions are not important, because they are. But right actions will only come from a heart that is right before God. The condition of the human heart has always been essential to God. He used it as his standard for picking the ruler of his people in ancient Israel. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read that the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God has always known that it is inward holiness that produces outward righteousness. It's who we are on the inside that determines how we live on the outside. Those who know God, those who have a relationship with Him, have had their hearts changed by the Lord. They have a pure heart. And a changed heart will impact how we interact with everyone around us. And that's why the last two Beatitudes change the focus to the true Christian's character before others. Before others. First, in verse 9, Jesus addresses the peacemakers. He's talking to those who work for peace. He says they will be called sons, they will be called children of God. 
Because God is passionate about peace. He desires the absence of strife. He desires restored relationships in his creation. Jesus says those who strive for peace, they will receive the full inheritance that belongs to God's descendants. Living as a peacemaker demonstrates that someone has been adopted by God, that someone has become a member of God's family. It's the way to have a life of exceeding righteousness. James 3.18 tells us that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I really love that imagery in just that one verse. It's saying that making peace produces a harvest of righteousness. So if we want to have a harvest, if we want to have an abundance of God's righteousness in our life, well then making peace, peacemaking, is one of the best ways to go about it. When Jesus said this, this beatitude he's saying is probably addressed to the political zealots that were around in Jesus' day. They thought that the only way to bring in God's kingdom was through a political change. They had to get their guys in power. They had to violently overthrow the Roman rule. But Jesus points to a different approach. He says that his children are to be peacemakers. And this applies to every person we meet. We work to be peacemakers with non-Christians by sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Tom talked about that earlier, praying for those opportunities, sharing about Jesus with them, telling them how they can be restored to God. At the same time, we seek to maintain peace, to maintain unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do this for the sake of the Lord's kingdom, the Lord's family. Because you know, a family that's full of squabbling siblings, that really does not look like a blessed family. And the more believers fight amongst themselves, the less attractive Christ's kingdom is to the world. Now, we should not compromise truth, but neither should we compromise unity just for the sake of our own egos. And that's why Hebrews 12 instructs Christians to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This means that a follower of Christ does not seek to be quarrelsome. They do not seek to be an agitator. A true Christian strives for peace because our holiness is not determined by the number of fights we started, but by the extent of Christ's peace that we shared. The very last beatitude in verse 10 is a blessing on those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, those who are persecuted for doing what is right. If someone lives this way, if they live the Beatitudes, that will invite persecution in their lives. You might say, why? This is just things they are on the inside. Why will it invite persecution? Because living this way is actually the opposite of the way the world operates, the sinful world, those who do not know God. Because the world exalts fulfilling your personal desires and living your truth. It looks down on those who take sin seriously, those who view themselves as sinners apart from God's grace. The world praises those who are skilled at self-promotion, who ooze self-confidence. It ignores those who use humble meekness to encourage others. The world tells you that what you want is much more important than what God wants. 
The world's concept of justice leaves no room for mistakes, no possibility of change, no possibility for growth over time. You make one mistake and you're canceled. True mercy is sneered at. The world wants you to listen to your heart, not to purify it. The world rewards your self-service instead of selfless peacemaking. So to live these beatitudes is to have boldness and to have the boldness to question what the rest of the world values. And the truth is, people do not like being told that they are wrong, no matter how kindly and gently you go about it. And the world responds to the Beatitudes with persecution and slander. The English pastor Charles Spurgeon, almost humorously, he says, the only homage, the only praise which wickedness can pay to righteousness is to persecute it. It's the only response that wickedness can have. Now, the last two verses, 11 and 12, they appear to be an expansion and a commentary on that last beatitude. In those verses, Jesus says that his followers are blessed when they are reviled, insulted, mocked, and when they have evil falsehoods spoken about them. This slander comes on Jesus' account. True Christians are insulted because They are followers of Jesus Christ. It happens for his sake. But nevertheless, verse 12 tells us that true Christians can rejoice. They can be glad. We see in this passage three reasons for that. First, being persecuted means you are blessed. Both verse 10 and 11 says, blessed are you who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Being persecuted is evidence that you are a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom. Second, being persecuted entitles you to a reward in God's kingdom. Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Everything you are going through now will one day be worth it. And finally, persecution connects you with God's people throughout history. The end of verse 12 says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. By being persecuted, you are sharing in the experience of the vast majority of the true followers of God. The Apostle Peter learned this lesson. In 1 Peter 4, he says, But I rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This last beatitude about persecution, it's a very convicting beatitude because most believers in Jesus Christ, myself included, who live here in the United States, we really have not experienced true persecution. Maybe in the verse 11 sense of somebody uttering false things about us or reviling us or mocking us, but not genuine suffering, not threats to our body, loss of freedom, loss of life. And the reality that we're not experiencing that, that should challenge us. Maybe the reason we haven't experienced real persecution is because God knows we're not mature enough to handle it. And think about it this way. If your life suddenly was not going the way you wanted, if the desires you had for life were suddenly not being met because you were being persecuted, would you rejoice in that moment? That's what the apostles did. They put this command into practice. We read in Acts 5, 41, they were arrested, they were questioned, then they were beaten, and this is what they do. They left the Sanhedrin, the council, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy 
of suffering disgrace and dishonor for Christ's name. This last beatitude is that true Christians are persecuted and reviled. Jesus is saying this is the way. This is the way. This is the way that Jesus says that his people are to live. These are powerful verses. Now, some of you who have certain shared interests perhaps as I do, you may have noticed that the title of this sermon is the reference to a quote from a new TV show called The Mandalorian. It's a Star Wars TV show that just came out. And the reason I did that is because the show focuses on a character who's a lone bounty hunter, and he comes from a culture called Mandalorians. And in the world of this show, this culture, these people, they're known throughout the galaxy for their unique armor, but also because they have a distinct lifestyle. For example, they never take off their helmets in the presence of another person. And they explain their code of ethics with the phrase, this is the way, this is the way. And almost everyone in the galaxy knows who the Mandalorians are. They know what they stand for. I watch the show, and in almost every episode, somebody runs into them and says, oh, I've heard the stories of the Mandalorians. And rather than being turned off by these strange, distinct people, they are attracted to this unique culture. They're attracted to the lifestyle that seems strange to the rest of the galaxy. Well, in the same way, these Beatitudes... They're what make Christians unique and different, distinct from non-Christians. These character traits define us. They set us apart from the unbelieving world. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably, she always attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate her hate that message at first. Believers in Jesus are part of a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual country. Remember that both the very first and the last beatitude, verse 3 and verse 10, the promise, the blessing, is that they will receive the kingdom of heaven. And when we live as citizens of that heavenly kingdom, when we demonstrate the difference that Jesus Christ has made in our lives, we attract the world. We draw them in. We make them wonder, what is it that makes these Christians so special? Through our words and actions, we call on the lost world to come to Him. Next week, we're going to continue this theme. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16 and talk about how Christians are to be salt and light in the world. Well, I have spoken and Jesus has spoken, but how should we respond to these Beatitudes? Well, first, I encourage you to look over this list. Examine yourself by it. Does your life reflect these character traits? Now, I'm not asking you if you do every single one of them perfectly. I'm asking, is your life generally, does it demonstrate the character of Jesus reflected in all of these beatitudes? And if it doesn't, then you have some serious soul-searching to do, because this is what a true Christian looks like. If you know your life is not defined by these things, if you know you don't live this way and you don't want to live this way, then you are probably a stranger to God's grace. My friend, go back to those first two Beatitudes. Explore what it means to be poor in spirit and to mourn 
your sin against God. Then turn away from that sin. Call out to Jesus in faith and trust because he alone can restore you to God. You can talk to me about what that means. I would be truly blessed to share with you how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if your life is defined by these Beatitudes, then you are blessed. That is what it means to be blessed. God has graciously given you the character of Jesus Christ. He has given you a lifestyle that honors Him. Now, perhaps you know Jesus, you want to live this way, but you're worried that you're failing at this list. You don't feel like you do it perfectly enough. Well, brothers and sisters, this is not a list of things you can succeed or fail at. This is a picture of what a true Christian looks like. So if you feel overwhelmed by the thought that you are failing, that you're not doing enough for God, well, then you're kind of missing the point. Because if you are a true Christian, you do live this way however imperfectly, and you are blessed. That should be a source of comfort, of joy, and of rejoicing. The second half of every verse that we just read is a promise to you. It's a statement of encouragement. The kingdom of heaven is yours. You shall be comforted, even if you don't feel like it right now. You shall inherit the earth. You shall be satisfied, even if you hunger and thirst for more of God and more of his righteousness now. You shall receive mercy. You shall see God because of what your Savior has done for you. You are a child of God. You are a citizen of his kingdom. Right now, his kingdom's only in your heart, and it's only in the hearts of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But someday, you will live in a heavenly kingdom. So praise God. The response of the true Christian to the Beatitudes should be to rejoice and to live them more and more each and every day. We should respond in praise together because Christ alone is worthy.